As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. 11 Wisconsin prisons now have at least 20 active cases of COVID-19. latest COVID-19 outbreak in Waupon has now infected one out of every three inmates. The state is supposed to be your protector. It's heartbreaking. You almost feel helpless. Some inmates who were sick were housed with inmates who were not. They put them in a cell with somebody who should have been isolated. Are you still able to isolate and quarantine sick inmates from those who are not sick? Yes. The warden yesterday sent out a memo to staff that says the opposite. Can you explain that? I'll have to check back on that memo. Wisconsin prisoners are sitting ducks. That's what a source at the Waupon Correctional Institution tells the Fox 6 investigators about conditions related to a major outbreak of COVID-19. It's the second outbreak this year at Waupon, which is one of at least 11 Wisconsin prisons with ongoing COVID-19 outbreaks right now. What is the state's plan for keeping inmates safe? That's our topic today's open record. From the Fox 6 Studios, this is Open Record. I'm Brian Polson. Amanda St. Hilaire is on assignment today, and I'm joined by Fox 6's Angelica Sanchez. Welcome back to the podcast, Angie. Thank you for having me. Today is Thursday, October 29th, and as of this morning, the Wisconsin Department of Corrections counts nearly 1,200 active cases of COVID-19 at 23 different prisons. 11 of those prisons have 20 or more active cases, and three of those prisons have more than 100, including Jackson, Oshkosh, and Waupon, which is in fact now more than 400 cases. So that's more than one out of every three inmates in that facility alone. Angelica, you've been covering this issue now for the past several weeks, talking to a lot of families with loved ones inside these buildings. What are they telling you? Well, this really began about a month and a half ago when we were starting to see some concerning allegations about uh, inmates that were COVID-19 positive being mixed with inmates that were not COVID-19 positive uh, inside Kettle Moraine. And so that obviously, as a journalist, it gets your attention when allegations like that are made. Uh, after looking into that further, we did discover that that was the case. And that obviously is concerning for anyone who has a loved one inside Kettle Moraine, uh, just because of what we know uh, of, the, of what COVID-19 can do. 
Well, and you, you point out Kettle Moraine specifically because when you started looking at this, I believe that's where the biggest outbreak was, right? I think that one reached something like 450 cases at one point. Yes, it did. The, I, I clearly remember the day that we started looking into the story, it was about 200 plus cases. And that's when I first discovered that uh, the Department of Corrections website that keeps track of all COVID-19 cases, it updates in the afternoon. So we thankfully were able to catch that that day uh, when it updated, the day we were doing the story, it went from 200 plus cases to 400 plus cases, like what we're seeing in Waupon. So families were very concerned uh, with what's going on with Kettle Moraine back then. And I would say they're still concerned now, um, even though their outbreak has um, has gone away, I believe now. Uh, now they're concerned for what they're seeing at Wapan. And is this going to be a pattern, an ongoing pattern, so long as we have this pandemic? Well, we know that in between the Kettle Moraine outbreak, which was massive, and now the Wapan, or the Wapan, I should say, outbreak, which is, which is huge, uh, we had Oshkosh, which is one of the biggest prisons in the state, and also had a, a, a an enormous outbreak. I think they, they topped uh, well over at least 300. I don't know how high that one went, but but when you talked about uh, one of the key things that families are saying is they're hearing that their loved ones who are not COVID-19 positive may well be mixed with inmates who have already tested positive. And you said we found that to be the case. And, and I want to I want to uh, hit on that because at Kettle Moraine, that was where you were doing a lot of these stories. That's where the biggest outbreak was for a while. So a lot of the family contacts were coming from there. Was that mixing them inmates something that Department of Corrections confirmed to you? Because I know families are saying it, but did they confirm that at least in that facility that was going on? Uh, yes, they eventually did confirm that. And it was, um, they were very careful with how they said it. It was due to the size of the outbreak um, that they confirmed that that was happening inside Kettle Moraine. For loved ones who have inmates who were, you know, healthy and now being in a cell with an inmate who's sick, they knew it was only a matter of time because that's what the science has told us. Uh, and for some families, sure enough, I was getting calls two or three weeks afterwards that, yes, my loved one is now COVID-19 positive after being with an inmate that was, that, that was positive. Well, and, and you said that uh, they said it was due to the size of the outbreak. I, I've also spoken to the Department of Corrections. As you know, we did an interview with the director of the Division of Alt Adult Institutions, Makta Fesahaya, um, earlier this week. And she said that it is not their policy or practice to mix inmates who are positive with those who are still not sick. In fact, their policy is to isolate them, to keep them away from those who are not sick. And those who they suspect might be developing symptoms or those who might have been exposed to a positive inmate are supposed to be quarantined. So if, if I'm hearing that right, it sounds like there should be essentially three groupings. You've got your isolated COVID positive inmates, your quarantined ones who might be at risk, might have pending tests, might have been exposed, but haven't yet tested positive. And then you've got your plain old healthy inmates who haven't been healthy, at least in terms of the virus. Uh, who haven't been believed to have been directly exposed and don't have any symptoms. When you get into the, some of these facilities where maybe they're housing, well, Oshkosh, 1,900 inmates, Wapan, 1,200 inmates, Racine, 1,600 inmates. Um, these buildings don't have a lot of places you can go 
to isolate and quarantine all of these people. So is that what they mean when they say when it reaches, when the outbreak reaches a certain point, they just, they're out of options? That's what it sounds like, especially when you're starting to get to the 400 numbers. Um, I think that uh, we're starting to see that there's only so many places where they can uh, isolate people. And I think for families, um, from what I'm hearing from them, you know, seven months into the pandemic, I think they're expecting more. And they want to see more done, especially since at this point with the numbers, the way we've seen them just in our own state, uh, you know, seeing that this pandemic, we're not near the finish line. I think that that's where they're coming from a place that they just want to see more done to control this. When you say see more done, I mean, some of the things that we on the outside of the prison world have been talking about now for months are some of the basics, things like you know, sanitizing, wiping things down, cleaning things, wearing masks when in the presence of people who are not in our own household. Um, And what I'm hearing, I'm sure you're hearing some of this as well from the people you've talked to, is at least allegations from inmates and family members of inmates that at least up until very recently, guards were not necessarily wearing, correctional officers were not necessarily wearing masks in all situations. Um, Inmates for a long time weren't being provided masks. I was told yesterday by someone that inmates were actually given uh, essentially the option to buy masks out of their canteen. Well, you've got some who don't have any money or who need to use their money sparingly. So essentially, whether or not you could wear a mask to protect yourself and others was a matter of your, your own personal funds. What are you hearing in that regard in terms of what we, I think, all now consider basic precautions, mask wearing and and cleaning supplies, what are you hearing as far as what's actually going on inside these facilities? I've heard similar stories that inmates uh, do not have access to cleaning supplies, to hand sanitizer. Um, The mask I haven't heard so much about, so I'm not uh, knowledgeable on that one, but I have heard the allegations that uh, there's not a lot of access to cleaning products. Uh, However, DOC, when it comes to cleaning, DOC has said that they have stepped up their cleaning in all their facilities due to uh, the pandemic. Um, But I have not been able to verify with the Department of Corrections really how cleaning practices um, have been able to be handed down to inmates if they have even have access to those products. Earlier this week when I interviewed uh, uh, Director Fesahaya about this question of mixing inmates, um, because now Wapan obviously has a very similar concern. Uh, And she said that, you know, I I said, are you able to isolate inmates? Uh, You heard it at the cold open of this podcast. Are you able to still isolate inmates who are sick from those who are not? And she said, yes. Uh, And and I countered that the warden there had released a memo to send a memo to staff that suggests otherwise. Now, this may be a matter of semantics and the parsing of words, but the memo that was provided to me, and, and this was by someone who is uh, connected to correctional officers at that facility. Um, obviously, someone on the staff leaked this memo and it made its way to me. Uh, that memo from the warden to staff indicated that essentially the situation has gotten really serious to the point now where they can no longer isolate inmates who have tested positive in a single location, a single unit, a single cell hall. Uh, And I think that was probably the ideal that all the COVID positive people would go in one place. Um, Whether or not that means they are mixing them in the same cells, I asked the director, she said that is not their practice. But I have talked now to several additional people who have loved ones there who say they're being told 
or they know specifically of inmates who have not tested positive or who have in fact tested negative, who are still in a cell with someone who's tested positive. So that raises the question of transparency. And at least in terms of the people you're talking to, the family members, do they feel like the Department of Corrections has been transparent about what's going on inside these prisons? No, and I think that's why they're reaching out to us. Um, I think that nowadays with social media being so accessible, I think it takes a lot for a person to pick up the phone and reach out to their local TV station. I think it takes a lot to write a letter um, asking for help. Uh, I think that they're being told one thing by their loved one who's incarcerated, and they're being told another thing by the Department of Corrections. And somewhere in that conversation, something just doesn't feel right to them. And that's why they're reaching out to us. I, not since the state had that issue with the unemployment, uh, that the unemployment situation and money going out, have I seen so many people reach out to us in such a short time span on an issue. And I think that just reflects that um, while the Department of Corrections, you know, is putting out there how many inmates are positive, how many are testing negative, there is data. I don't believe that the, the information that they're putting out there is satisfying these families who just want to, they want to know more. They want to know more in terms of hospitalizations. Those numbers aren't available. They want to know more in terms of the numbers of deaths. Those numbers are not available. Uh, they want to know more about um, these practices and allegations. They want clear answers. And they wouldn't be reaching out to us, I believe, if there was not a transparency issue. Well, and you make a really good point, Angie, that we have gotten, uh, I, would, I wouldn't maybe say an overwhelming number, but certainly an awful lot of contacts from family members and directly from inmates who are describing very similar conditions at multiple facilities. And that's what's interesting because it isn't as though you can say, well, this is just the inmates at Kettle Moraine grouping up, huddling up and coming up with a game plan as to you know what to say. Uh, we're hearing from people who have relatives at Wapan, in Oshkosh, Stanley, um, Racine, Kettle Moraine, obviously. So we're hearing from people at all these different facilities. I think Fox Lake and Red Granite, we've had contacts. Many of them are describing similar conditions, particularly at the ones that have had the biggest outbreaks, Oshkosh, Wapan, and, and uh, Racine. And I'm sorry, and Kettle Moraine. I mean, those four have had just huge outbreaks all here this fall. Uh, so the consistency of those stories as a journalist, I think, is probably what raises our attention to, okay, th there may be something more going on here. Is, does that, for you, add weight to what's being said? Because I think one of the biggest concerns in dealing with the health care of prisoners is they come from a place that's already untrustworthy. They are, they are people who've committed crimes. They are people who've done something wrong to get where they are. And I think it's easy maybe to dismiss what they might say until you start hearing these patterns. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think, you know, for, for loved ones, for the ones that I've spoken to, uh, you know, some of them, uh, they're... Uh, the, the person that's incarcerated in their family has a couple years left. That's that's who I feel I've heard a lot more from is those that they're they're close to that release date. Um, they don't deny that their loved one is incarcerated for a reason um, that they've made a, a big mistake and that's why they've been handed down a certain sentence. I think um, and I, and I'm gonna um, bring up a story of a father whose son is incarcerated. Um, and the father went away uh, a long time ago and went away when his son was just a baby, uh, from my understanding. And the father, um, you know, he, he said, I just, I want my son to have that second chance with his son. He's so close to getting out. 
And that's where their concerns are coming from. Is it, is, are they safe? Are, are they going to be okay? And will they be able to have that second chance uh, in their life? Certainly, they were sentenced to time. They were not sentenced to death. And that's the concern I've had raised uh, by some of these family members. One in particular who will appear in a story. uh, We're recording this on Thursday the 29th. This should be appearing on our newscast on Thursday the 29th. This young woman I spoke to yesterday, in fact, there were two who have loved ones that are in the hospital right now. They say, number one, they weren't even told that their loved one, who's an inmate, had been sent to the hospital. Uh, The warden there describes these as very serious illnesses in the memo that he sent out to staff. One of them uh, has a father who is on life support. And she finally talked her way, demanded her way into being told where he was and going to see him at the hospital. Uh, He's got a breathing tube, but he's he's in very... Uh, serious condition, uh, multiple organ failure. And she saw him through a window and they put a phone up to his ear so she could say something to him. And she said, you know, just keep fighting. Just, you know, do what you can to, to get out of here. And she said, he, he's got under a year left on his sentence. And she looked at, at that and thought, you know, we were finally hoping to get to see him again. This is a, a family man. Uh, he ran businesses in the Milwaukee area. Um, obviously committed a very serious crime to be where he is. But for family, the thought that they may not see that loved one again obviously is devastating. So regardless of the crime committed, this is a loss for people who have been waiting for the person who has done their time. They've paid their penance, um, waiting for them to come home and they might not. It's obviously a very, very difficult time for some of these families. Absolutely. And I've heard uh, from families as well, the, the hospital issue that if, if your loved one who's incarcerated has to be taken to a hospital, um, families are not notified right away and they are not told of the location. Now, I'm trying to remember, uh, but the DOC, when I asked about this, because again, more than one family brought this allegation, uh, the Department of Corrections said that there was a security issue, which I, I understand um, I imagine that there would be, but because of the pandemic, I would think that there would be more transparency on that front due to the pandemic. And I think that that's another big frustration for families um, when it comes to phone calls, uh, because phone calls are being limited because people are either in quarantine or whatnot, depending on the size of the outbreak in the prison. Um, I've had loved ones tell me that you know, I'm trying to call, I'm trying to call and I'm trying to reach out, but I'm told that the person is not available. So how do I know that they're okay? And I think that it's that feeling of not knowing, that feeling of like, is everything okay? That's just, I've, it's been described as it's putting a knot in their stomachs. And that's why they're reaching out to us. Now, in fairness to the Department of Corrections, this cannot be an easy situation to handle. We have outbreaks, obviously, outside of the prisons. The state of Wisconsin right now is in the midst of one of the worst outbreaks in the country, uh, just in the community spread that's going on all over the state of Wisconsin. And, and Director Fessahaya told me in our interview that they are dealing in their facilities with what the community is dealing with outside the facilities. And the reality is the virus is going to find its way in. And once it gets in, there's only so much you can do because, as we said before, you you don't have a single isolated room for every inmate. And there aren't 1,100 rooms at Waupon to put people and keep them all day. So this is definitely a challenge for the Department of Corrections in terms of how to keep inmates healthy and how to, to limit the spread. Um, 
I, I think the if I if I gather from the people you've talked to, uh, they don't seem to be or or are they? I shouldn't I shouldn't assume. Are they even concerned that this got in in the first place, or do they seem to understand that's what we're dealing with? Um, they just think it's not being handled as well as it should be. The people that I've spoken to put the blame on those that are able to come in and out of the prisons, um, which would be staff and correctional officers. Again, that's who they, I want to be very clear about that. That's who families uh, are saying are bringing this inside the prison. And, you know, there are very few ways that it really could find its way inside. Um, And I think that, you know, we, we don't know how contact tracing is taking place inside a prison either. Well, and you, you bring a good point to sort of how does it get in? I asked Director Fessahaya about that, and the first thing she went to is, well, there are any number of ways it could get in, and she pointed to inmates being transferred to hospital appointments and coming back. It could be inmates that are coming from county jails uh, to Wapan. We don't know if they were tested before. That's one of the things she said, but then I followed up and asked, well, I, isn't there a protocol when you're transferring inmates from one place to another to have them tested? And she said, well, absolutely. They're all tested and they're quarantined before they come. So that seemed to be an answer that came out of both sides of her mouth. On the one hand, county jail inmates could be causing this. On the other hand, she assured me they're doing all the proper testing and quarantining. So it does seem, based on that description, that the most likely source would probably be staff members who come and go each and every day. They're going back home to their families who are in the community. They're going to the grocery store. They're going wherever they might be going um, and, and then coming back to work. So that certainly seems to be a likely source. And I don't know if there's any way to eliminate that because I, I don't think we're going to see an NBA-style bubble where correctional officers live at the prison. Um, you know, they have families and they have lives to go to. But it does raise the question of what kind of screening is being done each day when they return? Um, you know, uh, uh, what level of testing is being done of those correctional staffers? Can they test them every single day, uh, even with a rapid test? I don't know if the, the you know, materials and equipment are available to do that. Um, obviously, that would be a very expensive proposition, but I can also imagine having inmates, uh, you know, going to hospitals and, and dying and other things could be a pretty expensive proposition as well. So it, it, there's a lot of questions here as to, to what they can do to prevent this from getting in in the first place. Do you sense from the stories you've done that they have any real plan here for keeping the virus out in the coming months? Because it's only going to get, uh, you know, worse before it gets better from what we're hearing. Yeah, we have not, well, I have not been able to get a clear answer. Um, and, and again, to be fair to the Department of Corrections, they are doing um, the best that they can according to their correspondence to us and what they're responding to, to our questions. Um, I think that it's a it's a big problem. Um, how do you handle an, an outbreak of that of that size? Uh, but it, to me, it doesn't seem like there is a plan in the works. And if there is, they're not sharing it with us. Um, I think that that's something else that families would like to see. They they again we you know we talked earlier. They want to see more. I think if they knew this is what we're gonna do and so-and-so date, and this is a plan that we have in motion, um, I think that that would ease a lot of concerns, or at least help ease concerns. Now, one thing we know they are doing is when they sense an outbreak is building at a facility, they're bringing in the National Guard to do mass testing so that they can at least determine where is the outbreak in our facility, who has it, who doesn't. And so, for instance, at Wapon, when that memo went out earlier this week, 
they already had an idea that it was probably going to reach around 400 and probably not go a whole lot higher than that because they say they've been able to now identify the population and hopefully, to the best of their ability in the, the size of facility they have, isolate them fr from others. It reached 402 today, or I guess it reached 402 on Wednesday uh, when the numbers were most recently updated. It was 397 the day before, so it looks it already looks like they're reaching the peak of that curve. And if it if this follows the pattern of other outbreaks at prisons that we've seen, it's going to drop back down precipitously, and within a couple of weeks, you would hope that means this Wapan outbreak will be eradicated unless a new source brings it back in. But as we've said, we're seeing this at so many different prisons all at the same time, it does seem to mirror what's going on in the larger community, and you wonder what can be done to stop this from turning into a massive outbreak in these other facilities. And that's something I raised with Director Fesahaya is it's going to get in if we are resigned to the fact that that's going to happen in spite of the best efforts to keep it out. It would seem quick identification is critical because when you look at the, we've, been, we've made graphs, as you know, uh, of these outbreaks, Angelica, and you see how tall the peaks are getting. It would seem, I, I hate to, to use a, a burned out phrase now, but the idea would be to flatten that curve, to bring that peak down so it doesn't reach 400, maybe only peaks at, at 80 or, or 60 or something like that. Um, these, these outbreaks of 400 or more are certainly having a serious impact on some who are being sent to the hospital and as, as we now know, some are, are dying. Yes, and there are groups that are, they believe that the solution is to release uh, certain inmates that meet certain uh, categories in their eyes. They believe that uh, again, one group, for example, um, ex-incarcerated people organizing, they've been advocating for months now um, and pleading with the governor that he use uh, his powers to release inmates um, that have maybe one or two years left in their sentence that are low risk uh, to the community um, and don't have that much time left in their sentence. That is what this group is advocating for, and they believe that that would be a solution to the issue. Um, so far, though, we have not seen any plan like that uh, be addressed by the governor. Well, and as our data shows, of these 11 facilities that currently have outbreaks of 20 or more cases, nine or 10 of them, and I'd have to look to check the, the numbers on that, but it's either nine or 10 are currently over their design capacity. Some are substantially beyond the design capacity for housing inmates. And so it does raise the question of whether or not a, a release of some of that crowding could help them do more isolation, could help them do more quarantining um, where they're running into some of those problems now. Now, what Director Fessahaya told me this week was, since the beginning of the pandemic, the department has reduced the overall statewide prison population by roughly 2,000 inmates. Um, she, and she said there is no magic number that they could get down to that would guarantee they could eliminate these outbreaks. So she can't point to here's how many more we need to release. But she did also say they are limited in their ability to do that. It's not up to the Department of Corrections to say we can release these people who are older, lower risk, toward the end of their sentence, that's something that has to come either from the courts or from, she says, from the governor's office or legislature. We know a lot of people are now asking, Governor Evers, what are you doing here? Are we hearing anything from the governor's office in terms of a plan? Well, uh, we've tried. <laughs> uh, we uh, have been asking the governor um, during those uh, Department of Health uh, 
press conferences that happen, those DHS calls, um, we have been asking the governor, uh, taking an opportunity to ask him about prisons. And if, you know, if is he aware of these numbers, I believe the last time we were able to ask a question, uh, to the governor was one of those DHS calls was with, with what was happening with Kettle Moraine and with Oshkosh, um, when their outbreaks were seeming to happen at the same time. Uh, the governor said this was concerning. He did say that those numbers were concerning and that, um, obviously that there was something that needed to be done about it, or he at least hinted that, you know, this was further proof of how the virus can be community spread, further proof of that. Um, but he didn't elaborate much on what his office has as a plan on whether he's in conversations with the Department of Corrections. He basically left it to this is concerning. Which seems to be stating the obvious. It doesn't really indicate what you plan to do about it. Right. He did say that the Department of Corrections, um, I believe his exact words were they're doing a great they're doing a great job. They're trying. They're doing what they can. But he did say the numbers were concerning and and something needed to be done. Um, I believe he did hint to, you know, this is something that's being brought from the outside. Clearly, uh, that, you know, the inmates inside were not the ones that started spreading it around amongst themselves. Uh, but he has not hinted or elaborated more or acknowledged the plea that some groups are making to him to take some sort of action in releasing some inmates. And, and I'm sure that's a controversial topic because one of the things I've experienced in looking at this is every time we talk to a family member of an inmate, I want to know who the inmate is. I want to look up what they're in there for because it's an it's still an important piece of context. And in some cases, you have someone, maybe it's a nonviolent offense like like drug dealing, uh, but reached a severe enough level to lead to prison time. But in other cases, it's child sexual assault. It's uh, it's felony murder. It's armed robbery. These are some serious crimes with victims who obviously probably are still traumatized by the crimes that occurred uh, however many years ago it was. So to talk about releasing people from the, the sentence the courts gave them is not a, a popular topic and is a difficult, it's a challenging one. But I think that's where some of these families, especially with loved ones who are, uh, as you said, low risk to the community, particularly because they've served the vast majority of their sentence and maybe older. I think one of the people who's currently hospitalized is, is 55, 56 years old and has kidney failure. Um, you know, is, is that a person who, you know, nine years into a 10 year sentence is a, is a huge uh, risk to the community? I think that's a, you know, a judgment call for, for someone else to make other than me. But to just say release a bunch of inmates is certainly a challenging question. Yeah, and it's very controversial for the reasons that you outlined. Um, I, I think that the the group that I've spoken to, ex-incarcerated people organizing, you know, again, they, they're saying it has to be people that are low risk to the community, especially if they have one or two years left in their sentence, they're going to come back to the community. It's, it's inevitable. They will be rejoining society. Uh, so if they're already at low risk, why not push that fur further, move that process further along. Again, that's what they're saying. That's not what I'm saying. That is where they stand on this issue, uh, that they're going to be rejoining society. Why not alleviate this, what they see as an issue of overcrowding in the prisons? And again, that's their stance on the situation. Uh, and we have not heard any type of movement from the governor's office on whether this is something that he would even address. And I think that that's 
to be honest, these groups that are have been some of his biggest supporters, they're very upset with him for not addressing this. That's another thing I've heard from them. Angie, the last thing I want to ask about here is the, is the number of deaths, because we don't know how many of these inmates have died of COVID-19 in, in the midst of some of these outbreaks, but we know there have been some. How have you been able to get the, the few numbers we know about uh, when the Department of Corrections says that releasing that data would be a HIPAA violation? Well, uh, so far we've been able to report three, right? That's the number. Um, we've been able to confirm three uh, inmate deaths. Uh, my photographer, Kale, and I decided to just cold call the medical examiner's offices on some in some of these counties and just ask. In some cases, they know exactly what we're, we're talking about. Um, and we were, we just asked, have you had any inmates pass away from COVID-19? And uh, they've been very great, very transparent. And some of them are saying, no, we have not. And we're glad. <laughs> we're glad that, that this hasn't happened. But we literally just cold call some of the medical examiner's offices near some of the prisons with the largest outbreaks and just asked. And so I believe it was Fond du Lac who confirmed for Fox 6 that third uh, inmate death. It had just happened in early October. Um, it does take a while for toxicology results to come through. So, you know, I know that when we first found out about Dodge County, um, in Dodge County, two uh, correctional inmates passing away after contracting COVID-19. Um, we didn't find out about that till October and those inmates passed away in September. And so it does take a few weeks for all the right test results to come through and for the medical examiners to do their due diligence and make sure, okay, did this individual pass away directly because of COVID-19 or were there some other, was there something else? So I know that in Dodge, for example, uh, one inmate had cancer. And but he did pass away after contracting COVID-19. The other inmate did die due to COVID-19, but he also had some underlying health issues. So, you know, that's important for us to, to see uh, when it comes to these deaths. And again, so far, we've only been able to confirm three, but this we're still making calls. We're still uh, fact checking and and making sure we're reaching out to the right people to get a clear view on that number. Well, and I would imagine the Department of Corrections is keeping tabs on this because they want to know what's happening. They have to. They have to know what's happening with their own inmates, the people in their care. They have to know if they are still hospitalized or if they've passed away. So clearly they know they're saying that HIPAA prevents them from releasing numbers, even without names, without identities. And what the director told me was that's because the numbers are, are small enough that you could go to the medical examiner and then find out who it was that died and essentially identify the person. So they believe that giving us even a number would be a HIPAA violation. In my long experience as an investigative reporter covering open records and privacy issues, my personal feeling is my personal, again, my professional opinion, I'm not a lawyer, uh, but I'm quite familiar with these laws, that that is a, uh, an overly strict and probably improper reading of of HIPAA, uh, but I am not an attorney and the director of the uh, Division of Adult Institutions is and and believes that that is the proper reading of it. Other states are releasing these numbers. Um, 
Wisconsin is not. And uh, and whether or not that's just an issue of, again, further of a lack of transparency or if they are the uh, the ones who are reading the law correctly, it's the same law. HIPAA applies to every state, not just Wisconsin. Uh, but here in Wisconsin, they won't tell us those numbers. Angie, your work on this uh, has been tremendous, and we appreciate not only your ongoing work on those stories, but joining us here today on Open Record. Uh, it's not the last we're going to be talking about it, I imagine, because uh, this hasn't gone away and, and may get worse before it gets better. But uh, again, thank you for your work on the issue and thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. And of course, we're going to continue bringing you these twice weekly episodes of Open Records. We cover the COVID-19 pandemic, presidential election, police community relations, and so much more. If there's a topic you want us to discuss, an issue you think we should investigate, send us an email to fox6investigators at fox.com. That is fox the number six, investigators at fox.com. And as always, thanks to the people who make this podcast possible, from producer Pete to editor Dave Machuda, Suzanne Barthel, and executive producer Sarah Smith. And please subscribe to Open Record if you haven't done that already. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Brian Polson, and we'll be back with our next regularly scheduled episode on Tuesday. Tuesday.